This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Hi, Democracy Matters listeners. Before we get started, we want to share another podcast that may interest you. America is reeling from an invasion of the U.S. Capitol, conspiracism, and more. Fueling all of this is a growing sense of illiberal extremism that threatens to destroy the entire American experiment. The Vital Center, hosted by historian Jeffrey Cobra Service, navigates this grim political landscape by looking at today's politics in the context of our nation's history, while examining concrete policies that can reverse our political dysfunction. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts today. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, co-host of Democracy Matters and director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. My name is Marina. I'm a senior political science and psychology major. I'm Logan Ziegler, program associate at JMU Civic. This week, we continue to explore the situation for refugees with a conversation with Julio Rank Wright, Deputy Regional Director for Latin America at the International Rescue Committee. Our conversation focuses on humanitarian action in Latin America, especially for migrants, refugees, and displaced people. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that you'll engage on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook accounts. All right, so we know people migrate and seek refuge for many reasons. Um, Surveys of migrants and research points to several key causes, including three broad categories, economic security and opportunities, safety, violence, instability, and governance. In addition, many migrants express a general sense of hopelessness, likely as a result of the combination of the above factors. So could you possibly share from your experience the realities and daily lived experiences for asylum seekers, migrants, and refugees coming from Central America? Yes, thank you, Marina. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to discuss such an important topic. Um, I can give you a perspective, um, you know, based on on our work on what Central American uh, migrants, refugees, and asylum seekers um, face as they seek refuge uh, further north, and as if you, I mean, as as you've accurately you know pointed out, it's very difficult to pinpoint a specific reason as to why someone chooses to migrate or seek refuge and, and asylum elsewhere. Um, in, in our own needs assessments, you know, we've discovered that people fleeing their countries often you know, don't see this as a first recourse, but rather they, they, um, they displace internally at times several times before they actually make or reach that tipping point of uh, migrating. So in terms of realities and you know, daily lived experiences, after um, an individual displaces internally, they find themselves usually unable to reestablish their lives, to connect with appropriate services. And hence, this leads them to once again displace, ultimately leading them to to fleeing their country of origin. So I guess the the first message that I'd like to reiterate uh, just off of your question is that migration is ultimately driven uh, by people seeking safety, protection, and better living conditions. Many times asylum seekers in their journey face the exact same 
threats that they are fleeing from. You know, they, they face kidnapping. They face the, um, the danger of being trafficked, of sexual violence, or, or even of being killed uh, en route to, to safety. Um, so th these are only, you know, some of the daily challenges that they, that they face. Um, we've seen, for instance, which might be of interest, you know, we, we were able to see an, an increase um, in the amount of information that was being sought by potential migrants in a, a platform that IRC has, a digital platform uh, that has information on services and just legal information and information in general. And we were able to see an increase in the demand for information on, you know, things like employment or ID documents on women's uh, services and protection services. And we saw this dramatic increase. And then, as you can imagine, with the impact of COVID-19, this has even been more exacerbated. So the challenges uh, on a daily basis are, are huge. Uh, many times, if not all, they're unimaginable. And so um, we find ourselves, you know, uh, interacting with, with human beings who are facing very difficult situations. Thank you, Julio. Um, <clears throat> Vice President Kamala Harris just took her first um, international trip, and it was um, to Central America. She's also been tasked with addressing the refugee and migration crises for the Biden administration. Um, in her speech while she was abroad, she warned uh, migrants from Central America not to come. Um, and that, you know, her, her speech has received some criticism uh, domestically in the United States from progressives. She's also received criticism from Republicans for not visiting the U.S.-Mexico border on her on her trip. Um, I wonder if you can speak to how U.S. policies under the Biden administration have changed and uh, may affect uh, those who have, who are being forced to migrate um, and and those seeking asylum and and refugees. Yeah, sure. So. Um, the first, I think, you know, change that we've seen, at least, is that um, there's talk of a, um, a tailored, you know, um, sort of response to the Northern Central America crisis. There is uh, funds that are being allocated to attend both a humanitarian crisis that's ongoing and a development need. Um, so, you know, historically, migration issues in Northern America, in Northern Central America rather, uh, had been addressed by the US government with policies focused primarily on, on economic development and immigration enforcement. Um, and then um, right now, I think, you know, a very quite recent, I'd say, recognition that there's a humanitarian crisis aspect to it that requires immediate humanitarian assistance um, has been an important shift in, in policy. Um, having said that, clearly, I mean, we think that if the U.S. government and all involved in trying to solve the Northern Central America crisis um, want to intervene in a, in a productive manner, if you will, um, it, it'll be very important to rely on a collaborative and an integrated you know, response that combines both of these elements. So immediate humanitarian assistance and a development response plan that seeks to address not only the root causes, 
um, and the effects of regional migration, but also seeks to identify durable solutions uh, and durable policy solutions. Uh, recently, the IRC drafted actually in, in sort of the frame of VP Harris's uh, trip to the region, a series of policy recommendations uh, to the US government as to how to best attend this crisis based on what we're seeing on the ground. The IRC is involved through its programs in what we call the arc of the crisis. So the arc of the crisis spans, you know, as I mentioned before, individuals that are first internally displaced that then seek to migrate, that they seek asylum, they become refugees, and then they are resettled in a third country. And it also includes those that are being returned to their countries of origin. So this, this, these series of um, you know, policy sort of recommendations that we've identified um, are, are quite vast, but, but they're very specific in nature. You know, the first one is, I mean, kind of obvious, right, is, is this need to invest in humanitarian assistance. Um, this includes sort of activities, you know, like providing humanitarian cash support, emergency cash support. Uh, many of, of the individuals that we work with are forced to displace or migrate with virtually nothing. I mean, completely uprooted from one day to the next at times with nothing. And so they need some sort of immediate um, you know, cash support for transportation to make it out of the communities that they're in harm, um, for accessing food, basic food and health services. Um, and we also you know, advocate for um, improved access to information. I think, um, like I said before, you know, having reliable information for those that are looking to migrate makes a big difference. Uh, and this is a little bit, you know, in relation to what you mentioned as to what the message was, don't migrate, don't come. You know, at times uh, people are hearing something different on the ground. You know, there's mixed messages. Um, and so we find that uh, credible access to information is important. Um, and, and so we, we've drafted a series and we can certainly share it, you know, uh, with you later. And um, your listeners can also see it through our, our website, a series of policy recommendations that are very practical so that there's a, a durable um, solution to the crisis. Um, Julio, if I could also just ask a follow up question. Um, regarding the Biden administration's policies, we know that they have um, uh, raised the refugee cap, the number of refugees that the United States will accept. I wonder, um, I wonder how raising that cap might affect um, refugees and migrants from Central America. Um, and then also how the United States compares to other developed uh, countries and other developed democracies, specifically in terms of the number of uh, refugees they take, and and also developing nations as well. Um, I think something like ninety percent of refugees um, actually um, are taken in by developing countries and not by developed countries. And so I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're definitely seeing. So there's there's two um, sort of uh, themes regarding this. 
The first is that indeed, you know, we, we urge as IRC, we urge President Biden and his administration um, to, to raise the refugee admissions. Uh, our goal is 125,000, uh, but clearly, you know, as you've noted, um, this seems like a very small percentage um, when you look at the fact that the world's what, 25 million refugees uh, who don't, you know, simply going home isn't an option. An option. Um, and just last year, only, you know, 2% of those had a chance for a fresh start in a welcoming country. So 125,000 might seem like a very small number for a large universe of individuals that seems to be ever growing across the world. However, we think it's a start. Um, and, and the other thing that we advocate for is um, an end to Title 42, uh, which is this policy or this idea that uh, is in place, which is closing uh, the border due to uh, health and, and COVID concerns. There are certain exceptions that are allowed right now uh, for highly vulnerable families and individuals, but we think that, I mean, uh, it's important to end Title 42 uh, so that the normal processes of asylum seekers and people who are, you know, sort of doing all that is required of them to formally become refugees can advance. I think it, it's very important to just add something and it's, you know, uh, understanding that the crisis maybe in or the Northern Central America crisis really is occurring not in the northern border of Mexico in the U.S., but rather, you know, in the southern border of Mexico uh, and in Central America. We've seen a great deal or, or an increase in the context of COVID, which is quite troubling, of course, you know, a substantial increase in reports of gender-based violence, you know, in, in Honduras specifically during COVID, we saw an increase of what, between 60 and 60% of, of cases. And I think that's, um, you know, it's, it's very, very troubling. Um, we also, an important point that I'd like to make is we advocate in, you know, with all these policy interventions as well to, to really focus on wraparound services for, for children and women victims of violence and um, obviously men as well, um, so that they, the community can embrace them, so that they can get the psychosocial support they need. I mean, you know, breaking the cycle of chronic violence in the region is not an easy feat, but it's an, it's an important endeavor that, that um, you know, not just humanitarian organizations like IRC, but partners local and beyond need to engage in. The, the goal of 125,000 um, to me seems modest. And I'm wondering if you can speak to some of the political challenges that the administration could face to raise it even higher than that. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, in, in my view, um, Working with refugees, you know, it could be 125,000, it could be a little more, and it'll just, when you look at, at the gravity of the situation that, just because of the, the world's context, it seems that it'll never be enough, right? I mean, I think 
one of the last uh, stats I was looking at uh, was you know, one in 95 uh, people in the world are displaced. You know, close to 1% of the world's population um, is dis forcibly displaced or has uh, needed to seek refuge elsewhere. And so the numbers are growing. And as you can imagine, with COVID-19, this has just completely, I mean, it's, it's become exacerbated. And so uh, ch internal challenges, policy challenges for the administration, I guess, would be know, finding the political will internally within the U.S. domestic political system to advance an agenda that identifies refugees as valuable, um, you know, members of a community, that uh, members of a community that add, you know, um, sort of contribute to the economic uh, health of a state or a community that they belong to, um, one that identifies refugees and asylum seekers as productive members of society with a vastness and richness of things that they could contribute, which is endless, right? I mean, we, as a matter of fact, in, in, in light of uh, World Refugee Day, you know, we, we have this campaign going on uh, that is titled Refugees Are Courageous, and we focused on artists, for instance. And you find amazing artists with with fantastic contributions to the artistic world. And this is just a small you know, window into what refugees can contribute. Refugees are entrepreneurs, they're valuable members of community, they're devoted citizens or devoted individuals to democratic processes and so forth. And we maybe we could go on and on, right? This is exactly what I was getting at, right? That, that, that um, seeing, refugees, new community members as an asset to that community. Um, one might think that that could make it a, a community stronger and more attractive and therefore have that, give political leaders the will to raise that number. So thank you for addressing that. There was substantial progress under the Obama administration working with various United Nations agencies to strengthen governance, accountability, and judicial oversight in Central American countries, particularly in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. The focus under the Trump administration changed from working through international institutions to stopping migrants. What should policymakers focus on to address the refugee and forced migration crises? Um, so I think this is a little bit of you know, what I was talking about before um, in terms of the policy recommendations. Um, I think, you know, in the context of Northern and Central America, there's a tendency to want to identify a single root cause or driver uh, for migration. And that's just simply, you know, it's, it, it, it's not productive because the, the crisis be, behind migrating is multifaceted. Um, it is multifactorial. And it requires, you know, attention in various different fields. Uh, I, I kind of, you know, start from a basis of no one willingly wants to migrate unless they're forced to, right? I mean, unless it's the last recourse. Um, and that's why in our needs assessments, we see that many families 
you know, will displace internally from one community to the you know neighboring community once, twice, three, four, or five times, but they end up making the journey just because it's simply unlivable because of you know they're victims of gender-based violence or they're victims of extortion or they're victims of gang violence or because of lack of economic opportunity. So in terms of policy, I think um, recognizing this combination of immediate needs for highly vulnerable people uh, and subgroups, you know, uh, women, the LGBTI community, um, some, some unaccompanied minors, uh, these very uh, sort of practical, if you will, and immediate needs for psychosocial support, you know, child protection, um, it, that's, that's part of the formula. And then the other is looking for you know, the longer term uh, generating of conditions in country so that countries can grow economically, so that democratic institutions can work to serve their populations, so that victims of gender-based violence are re-victim, are not re-victimized by um, you know, policies, local policies or, or politics um, and weak institutions. So I think, you know, it's it's a difficult one. It's it's a difficult question to tackle uh, because it's like I said, it's multifaceted. But at the core, I think it's a combination of you know, providing humanitarian immediate assistance and developing longer term development plans as well and supporting them. Um, touching on something you just briefly spoke about, um, being on the ground in Central America, what do you see as the immediate future for democracy in the region? Um, I think it, it varies. I mean, um, you often, I, I know some, some uh, civil society organizations and uh, you know, even governments in Northern Central America have a tendency to, to not like being clumped up as you know, a triangle, the Northern Triangle, the Northern Central American Triangle, because the realities in all three countries are very different in terms of strength of democratic institutions, you know, separation of powers, checks and balances, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, I, I see what I see are uh, three countries that have longstanding structural issues with um, you know, social justice, with uh, equity, with access to opportunity. Um, but you see uh, three countries that are, you know, have made strides, some more than others in certain areas. Um, but at the end of the day, in this very context, you see three countries that have been very hard hit by COVID-19 and, and three countries that despite all the efforts that they, you know, might have advanced in terms of, uh, you know, I don't know, generating conditions for economic development, for strengthening institutions, find themselves all of a sudden, like many other countries in the world, with a situation where, you know, their economic uh, or their economy has come to a complete standstill um, with a large percentage of their um, economically active population in the informal sector, um, and uh, with a lot of, you know, fiscal pressure as well. So we've been speaking with Julio Rank-Wright, 
Deputy Regional Director for Latin America at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you for joining us today to speak about the challenges facing and contributions of refugees from Central America. So we asked this question of all of our guests, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Uh, this is a good one, I enjoy this. <laughs> so um, I, I personally believe, um, just because of my you know, experience and I guess ap- academic formation that um, you know, social capital understood as trust among, uh, amongst each other uh, and with democratic institutions has decreased overwhelmingly over time in, in the world. Uh, I think we need to rebuild this trust from the community level upwards um, to strengthen democracy to me involves, I'd say, two main actions. Uh, the first is, you know, uh, understanding um, this new normal when it comes to citizens demanding accountability and responsiveness from governments. I think we're in a world where rhetoric, uh, rhetoric alone isn't going to cut it anymore. You know, people want tangible results from their elected officials and governments. I think uh, modernizing the public sector is important, probably more than ever. Uh, and second, um, I think that you know, to, to continue to strengthen the main pillars of democracy, which to me, you know, I trust to be political parties, civil society, labor unions, uh, the private sector is important, but also promoting new forms of representation and democratic expression. Uh, where historically marginalized groups like refugees are able to voice their concerns and needs um, and more importantly offer the wealth of contributions that they have for a stronger uh, and more robust democratic system.